Okay, please stand with me if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an epaph of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, who's the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kelsey. Good morning. My name is Brad, and I am also uh, a pastor here at Grace Sacramento, and we're grateful uh, for you to be with us this morning. You're joining us, if for the first time or for the first time in a while, you're joining us on the the second Sunday of a series that uh, we've started in the book of Ruth, which is just a a little short book in the Old Testament uh, named after uh, this woman, Ruth. And uh, it's one that I really, really love. I have a, I have a friend uh, who I know from the gym, and we'll call, his, we'll call him Ahmed. Uh, names have been changed to protect the innocent. And uh, Ahmed is a college student. He has a part-time job. He is a single young adult. Maybe he's a little bit older than uh, other individuals in his uh, maybe same life stage. Because Ahmed's first job was to be a translator for American soldiers and officials during the war in his home country of Afghanistan. After years of risking his life for American interests, he was granted what they call special refugee status and, brought, and he was able to come to the United States. Um, he is... He, he has been given a, a status as someone who is no longer safe in their own country. As you can imagine, um, that hasn't been easy. His life in his, in his home country wasn't easy. And as news has unfolded over the last months and years, it's not easy to be here and wonder how the people that he loves are faring in Afghanistan. And so... Uh, some months ago, at, you know, I see him a couple times a week sometimes, depending on who's at the gym when, but uh, a few months ago, Ahmed lost his part-time job, and I was pretty concerned. I was a little bit, uh, I was upset for him. I thought, what are you going to do? You're here all by yourself. How are you going to make it? And he was, I would describe as nearly unfazed, and he said something like this, almost with joy. He said, this country has taken me in. There's a program here that's helping me go to school. He said, I'm not concerned. Besides, uh, I may not have a job, but nobody here is trying to kill me. And I couldn't say that if I was at home. And I was (laughs) pretty humbled uh, by that perspective and grateful, I think, to live in a place where even if I get frustrated with politics and process and bureaucracy and everything else, 
I live in a place that has prepared for someone like Ahmed. Now, there's laws and there's programs and there's structures that have been prepared for someone like him who uh, is a refugee, a special, has a special status as someone who needs to be here and needs to be protected. Last week, Daniel introduced us to a couple of refugees, uh, a woman named Naomi. She's a, a widow, maybe an elderly widow of a Hebrew man, uh, a guy whose name was Elimelech. And Elimelech and his family abandoned their portion of uh, what Israelites would have called the promised land in Canaan and immigrated to Moab because there was a famine. Uh, the, other, the other refugee that we were introduced to was a, a younger woman named Ruth who had been married to Naomi's son uh, who also died. And so two widows, an, elderly, an, an older widow and a younger widow, uh, returning to Israel, returning to Bethlehem as refugees. When we left off last week, Naomi and Ruth had heard that the famine in Israel had ended and decided to return. And the last line of the first chapter of the book of Ruth says that as they were arriving in Bethlehem, and Daniel told us that that, that title for that city, Bethlehem, actually means house of bread. So as they were arriving in the city called house of bread, uh, we, we're told that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. So uh, the, the workers are bringing in the harvest to the house of bread. But if homelessness in our own city teaches us anything, it's that just because there's bread in the house doesn't mean that everybody gets to eat. Just because it's harvest time doesn't mean that these Two women have means or have access to the grain that's coming in. They don't own land. Um, they don't have husbands or sons who could be hired out as day laborers as part of that harvest. Um, they don't have connections. In fact, to be a widow in this culture would have been the definition of disconnected and, uh, and without protection. And so... What sort of preparation is there in Bethlehem? What sort of preparation is there in Israel for a refugee like Ruth or a refugee like Naomi? Uh, it's it's kind of funny, but if you want to try to understand the book of Ruth, if you want to know the whole story, that the whole larger story about God's provision, not just for this family, but for his people, and actually... If you want to understand how it is that Ruth becomes one of only three women to get named in the family tree, in the genealogy of Jesus, the Savior, if you're interested in understanding those things, then you have to know a little bit about welfare laws in Bethlehem. Social programs that were in place in the land to which she came as a special sort of refugee. And so today, a sermon in three parts. Uh, first, prepared to care, understanding how Old Testament law reflected God's heart for the alien and the widow and the orphan. Secondly, risky faith, what it looks like to trust God's heart. And finally, wings of refuge, the God who protects. Part one, prepared to care, trying to understand how 
laws in the Old Testament reflected the heart of God. At the beginning of our chapter, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth, the younger woman, says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. What is Ruth talking about? Is Ruth going to go out and try to steal some grain while people are harvesting? Is she going to try to get herself hired on as a, as a day laborer or a harvest worker? Listen to this passage uh, from another book in the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy chapter 24, one of the books of what they call the Law of Moses in the Old Testament. It says there, Deuteronomy 24, 19 and following, uh, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf on the, in the field, you shall not go back for it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, don't, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and therefore I command you to do this. So it's legislated in Israel that landowners were only to take one pass through their fields as they were harvesting. They were, they're told not to worry, as it were, about doing the hard work of getting too close to the fence lines or all the way into the corners of the fields as they were harvesting. And so whatever was uh, hard to reach or inefficient to get was to be left for the poor who were to come afterwards. And anyone who was willing to come and harvest it for themselves, could have it for their families. Those are the categories of the unconnected and unprotected, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, those who had, uh, as it were, no social protection in Israel otherwise. And it says this funny thing as an explanation. It says, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and therefore I command you to do this. So embedded in the law of Israel was a provision for refugees and sojourners as a reminder to Hebrews that they were once aliens in a foreign land. And the story of the Old Testament is that they were slaves in Egypt. So they were aliens in a foreign land. And like so many other places, even today, that land that they were refugees in, that land that they had gone to for protection, took advantage of them. Took advantage of them when they were vulnerable, when they couldn't advocate for themselves, when they were unconnected, and made them slaves. And so as a landowner in Israel, you can demonstrate that you understand who your God is, his heart for the unconnected and the powerless. You, you can understand that, you can demonstrate that you understand God's heart and that he has been kind and generous with you and your family when you had nothing in Egypt, when, when your forefathers were slaves. And the way that you demonstrate that is by being kind and generous to those who find themselves in the same situation in Israel. The people who come to your field with nothing. In that same part of the Bible, in uh, the uh, book of Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy 15.4, uh, there, 
the, the law of Moses makes this extravagant claim. It says there, there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And it sounds almost like a miraculous promise, right? This is the promised land, and when you get there, the streets will be made of gold, and there will be no poor. And there is a sense that God is making a miraculous promise to them that he is going to provide for them in the, in the promised land. But it's also implying, not that the streets will be made of gold, but that if the people of God love him and love their neighbor the way that he has loved them and provided for them, then they'll provide for those who come into their land and then when they see need, they'll meet it and none will be poor in their midst because they truly understand the heart of God that he freed them and protected them and cared for them when they had nothing. And so uh, when they see people in their midst in the same situation, uh, they won't allow for it. They won't allow for there to be bondage or poverty in their midst. And so these are the, the laws of the land in Bethlehem when Naomi and Ruth arrive. So um, that's wonderful. These are beautiful laws. What, a, what an incredible place. But as each one of us knows who broke the speed limit on the way here because you were late for church, just because something is a law doesn't mean anyone actually does it right? The law of the land is such. Boy, it would be lovely if there was a land where everyone drove 55. Part two, risky faith. What it looks like to trust God's heart. I spent, some of you have heard some of this story, but I've spent the last year working on a project, and in, in that uh, project, a big part of it has involved interviewing other pastoral partnerships that are similar in one way or another to the partnership that Daniel and I have. So I've been uh, Zooming and traveling around the country and interviewing uh, partners of different ethnicities, people who are leading churches and trying to do it in a similar way to Daniel and I. And across the board, the consensus is that working together with a partner is not always as efficient as leading and making decisions on your own. In fact, uh, the consensus is that committing to pursuing and, and praying towards building a multi-ethnic church with uh, multi-generations in the room, um, uh, committing to pursuing what, what the, the scripture gives as a vision of a gathering of worshipers from every tribe and language and nation, uh, is not a strategy that gets your name onto the list of the fastest growing churches in America. In fact, um, it's a very poor plan if your hope is to become a megachurch. It's uh, slow, it's inefficient, it's not in any of the training, it's not recommended. So why do it? Well, this is one of the questions that I asked each one of these teams, and the answers were often some variation, and one of the answers is because it's in the Scripture, because God says that the kingdom is going to be a, a, a multitude from every tribe and language and nation. And uh, 
And, and some variation of the quote of the following pastor, we'll call him Juan. And uh, Juan was reflecting on the scriptural promise that God is going to make his church become a beautiful bride made from every people of all nations. And Juan says, this is God's will. This is God's heart for the church. Uh, doing church this way, it doesn't matter if it's inconvenient. If this is God's will, then God is really in it. And he will do more than you can ask or think or imagine as you attempt to be faithful to his heart and his will. And so in the first chapter of Ruth, uh, it said, it said, I'm sorry, in the first chapter, Ruth said to Naomi that she was going to go with her, that where she would go, Ruth would go, and that Naomi's God would be Ruth's God. So in the first chapter, Ruth, this Moabite, this foreigner, has made something of a profession of faith. I'm going to follow the God of the Hebrews. But now in chapter 2, and you can kind of imagine being a foreigner in the land, maybe you get a chance to read the, the laws and you say, holy smokes, do you know what the law says about people who don't have anything to eat? It says you can go out and glean and gather grain in somebody else's field. And so now in chapter 2, she actually steps out believing that if this God of the Hebrews truly does have a heart for the alien, truly does have a heart for the fatherless and the widow, then that will mean that there's more than laws on the books in Bethlehem, but that there will actually be grain to gather in the corners of the fields. That there'll actually be olives to pick on the trees. And so she set out, it says, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She said, essentially by her actions, if this God is real, and he really is who he says he is, then he will do more than I could think or imagine to provide for me. Many of us don't find ourselves as a foreigner in a foreign land or without food, but we're constantly being confronted with whether or not to be a person of integrity and trust that the Lord will be our provision in that complicated situation at work. We're constantly being challenged as parents to say, uh, will I do the hard work of uh, of trying to raise my kids in the Lord, or will we take uh, the, the easier way? And, uh, and like Ruth, we're being invited to believe. Believe that God is who he says he is, and that when we, do, uh, when, when we follow his commands, when we do uh, and follow after his own heart, that he'll do more than we could ask or imagine. You could say something similar about Boaz. The passage says that he is a worthy man of the clan. Uh, this probably means something to the effect of that he's a man of character and integrity. And integrity has to do with being genuine, right? Integrated, not saying one thing and then doing another or confessing to believe something and, that, and not ever allow it to have an effect on your life or as it were, your bottom line, right? Your budget. And so Boaz shows that he's a man of integrity, in fact, he not only knows the law for landowners, but it sounds like he follows it, right? To a significant cost to himself, estimating that he, uh, he probably is losing somewhere between 10 and 15% of his harvest in the field to the sojourners, to the fatherless, to the widows. 
But he does it believing that God had truly remembered him and his family when they were slaves in Egypt and believing that if he provides this way for others, that God is in it. It's not efficient. It's not the easiest way. It's not the most lucrative way. But if God is in it, then somehow he's going to do more with it than Boaz could ask or imagine. Maybe you have a similar internal struggle when it comes to giving, right? Uh, thinking about giving away 10% of your income. That's, the, that's the, the word that the scripture uses. A tithe means 10%. Think what you could do with that money. You could do a lot. Maybe you give just a little bit less and keep just a little bit more. Who knows? Maybe Boaz was tempted to just secretly shake the olive trees a second time at night, right? But when there are people standing in the field behind the harvesters, waiting and hoping that uh, the landowner will follow the law, it puts a face on, uh, it, it, it puts people, it puts a face, it puts a family on something that otherwise would just be an issue, right? Or a situation. And we see that uh, for both, and we see that uh, for Boaz, this is more than just uh, rote obedience because he does more than the law requires. In fact, he goes particularly with Ruth above and beyond to display to her the heart of God, not only following the law, but calling her daughter, addressing her directly, giving her protection and water, even inviting her to join his harvesters to eat. And that that happens for us too when we're invested in ministry, when we're invested in um, initiatives. We, we want to know the stories. We want to know uh, what it is that we're invested in. And uh, with, with those relationships, uh, we can see the heart of God in the work that we do and the, in the gifts that we give. This is more for Boaz than leaving the corners of the fields unharvested. Um, and that's exactly the point. It, it shows to some extent that he understands the heart of God. It's interesting to note, however, how uh, if you want to compare the way that Ruth and Boaz operate with how Naomi operates. Remember her? The bitter one? She doesn't go with Ruth. We don't know if she's too elderly to do that kind of work, maybe. Um, but she doesn't even mention to Ruth in chapter 2 that they have relatives who own property. She says nothing about Boaz or the other uh, property owner who shows up later in the book and is related to them. She says three words to Ruth when, she, when Ruth suggests that she go and glean. She says, go, my daughter. We can't, we, we can't import tone so we don't know if it was a celebration of the idea. But it hardly seems like an encouragement and maybe was a half-hearted consent. Uh, ba I, 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 I make that statement based on uh, Naomi's inaction being consistent with the things that she said about what she's believing about the heart of God. Last week we read in the first chapter, uh, she said, The Almighty has dealt bitter bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity on me. In uh, chapter 1, she says these things. And uh, 
Of course, Naomi is doing some selecting, selective remembering, which we all do. We get into a hard spot, and it's easy to admit the fact that she and her husband abandoned their land. Uh, it's easy to admit the fact that their sons had married Moabites, which was strictly forbidden. Uh, you can almost feel Naomi's lethargic reaction to the idea of participating in God's plan, uh, both maybe because of guilt or regret for her own actions and also because of unbelief. Uh, she's not expecting anything. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Too beat up by life to believe that God is for you. Too hurt, hurt too many times by people or churches to still have hopeful expectations. Too tired to keep asking big questions about faith and about suffering and about God's goodness. And if that's the case, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're logged in online if that's you. Because I think that if Naomi got anything right, uh, it's this. Even in the midst of her bitterness and her brokenness and her discouragement, she surrounded herself with people, people like Ruth ultimately Boaz. She moved back to Bethlehem, and we hear later about the women of that city who worshiped the God who is. She surround her, her, herself with people who themselves were still willing to believe that God was up to something, that he was still working. Hey, she was, she surrounded herself with people who were still willing to risk that he was who he says he is, still willing to rely on his heart and put, uh, their, put their belief on display by following his word. She surrounded herself by people who were attempting to live out his word in their lives to see what happens. And so yet, even in her bitterness and in exhaustion, uh, we don't find that she excommunicates herself from the people of God. And that's a tendency, right? I'm going to go hide in a hole and I'm not going to answer phone calls or texts from people who love Jesus because I'm so mad at him. But rather, she moves back to Bethlehem and she surrounds herself with a people of faith. It's a pretty big deal, I think, uh, for someone who's hurting so badly to do. And maybe that's all you can muster right now. And so we say, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Who knows what might happen? What happens for Ruth and Naomi? Part number three, the wings of refuge. In the training that we do here at Grace Sacramento for our diaconate, for our deacons and our deaconesses, we talk about steps in responding to a crisis. And in that conversation, we talk about how there, are, there is what we call relief and what we call um, rehabilitation. And we talk about how relief is when somebody in crisis comes into our midst, uh, uh, relief is providing for immediate needs, food, water, medical care, emergency housing with no questions asked. This person is in crisis. They need relief. And then we talk about how rehabilitation comes later. It's a more structured engagement where we're trying to uh, build into them and into their life things that will prevent the crisis from returning. 
And the book of Ruth uses two words kind of similar, similarly, um, refuge and redemption. Refuge, which is safety, which is a covering, which is protection and provision, um, a covering from the immediate danger and crisis, and redemption, which refers to restoration, which refers to, return, to a returning of value and of purpose. And so we're going to learn uh, that we're going we're to learn more about this idea of redemption in the weeks to come because it is uh, bold in the book of Ruth, the idea of God's redemption for her and for her family and for all of his people. Uh, but for now, it's, uh, it's fair to say that what we need first, what Ruth and Naomi needs first, is refuge. And what Boaz understands is that today, this day that he's encountering her for the first time, Ruth needs enough safety to survive in the field. He, she needs enough food to make it till morning. She's not, she's not thinking about details and long-term plans right now. She's thinking about survival, and she's asking, is God good? And by the time that they meet, Boaz has heard the story, uh, the whole story about this scandalous Moabite widow who shouldn't be here but has returned to care for her Hebrew mother-in-law. And, uh, and although Boaz is in fact the one by his faithfulness to provide for her the drink that she needs and the food that she requires and the protection in the field, uh, as she works, he doesn't say, his interaction with her is not, hey, Boaz, let me take it from here, right? He doesn't say, hey, I got you. You can count on me. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done and, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He recognizes that what he is doing is not so that he can earn favor. He's not doing this for his own record. He's not operating out of rote obedience. You have to do this. This is the law. But he's operating out of the hope that when she sees the refuge that she finds in his field and in his presence, through his faithfulness, that she'll recognize that that refuge is something that's provided by this God who loves, who has saved and protected the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. God uses the faithfulness of Boaz to provide refuge for Ruth. God uses the faithfulness of Ruth, strangely, the foreigner who decides to believe Hebrew laws and into a Hebrew God, he uses Ruth's faithfulness um, to restore faith in Naomi. This passage says that Ruth comes home with leftovers from lunch and something like 50 pounds of flour. When we, uh, when we encounter God's grace in our lives, we most often encounter it in a human face. Someone who believed God's word 
They believed that if they put that into action, that he was going to do something more than they ever could ask or imagine. Ultimately, God's grace has a human face. Ultimately, when we read the scriptures, we find that God's grace came to us incarnate in the face and in the person of Jesus. The gospel paints a picture for us of God walking on earth and loving children, caring and providing for the poor and the destitute, um, protecting and empowering women and including even the foreigner. And Ruth 2.12 talks about God almost like a mother, almost like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wing for protection. Boaz says, blessed be uh, the, the Lord of the Hebrews under whose wing you have come to take refuge. And so there, we have this picture of God gathering those who are his own under his wings for protection. And this is ultimately exactly what Jesus did. Right? Stretching out his arms on the cross, taking upon himself the punishment of sin and providing protection and refuge to all of us who would run to him.